Karlsson, Karlsson, världens bästa Karlsson. Karlsson, Karlsson, hoj här kommer Karlsson. Karlsson, Karlsson, ingen faktiskt, ingen annan Karlsson. Karlsson, är så bra som mig. Karlsson, Karlsson, Karlsson scores! Karlsson, Karlsson, Yes, welcome everybody to another episode of Keeping Carlson Fantasy Hockey Podcast, the longest running fantasy hockey podcast in the world, hosted by two guys who try our best to learn from our mistakes, and this episode will be no different. I'm your host, Elon Dubrovsky. With me, as always, the poobah of prognostication, the IPP MVP, the fantasy hockey robot himself, my good friend Brian Combe. Hello, Elon. Hello, everybody. This is it. This is the official beginning, I think, of our off-season or end of off-season, our pre-pre-season or maybe even pre-pre-pre-season player analysis to get you ready for your drafts. Elon, you and I are already mock drafting with some of our patrons from our Discord server. Uh, we'll share some of the results as we go through this episode. We shared a ton on our patron cast that happened last week. Uh, it's a lot of fun to be here in this time of the season. It's like, oh, yeah, that happened in 2020, 2021. And what am I supposed to do about it? Well, this episode, we hope to tell you. Yeah, the plan for this episode is that if you recall a year ago, I guess not a year ago, like last December, uh, we came up with our own projections with the patrons. We had the patron projection project where every day patrons were voting on their expected point paces for all the players in the league that we thought were going to be relevant. And we have those numbers. Now we have the results of what happened in the season. So we're going to split this episode up into two episodes, actually. We're going to start with one episode today where we're going to look at the players that the patrons were, and us, of course, were too low on. We didn't expect the big breakout that they ended up providing us. And then, uh, furthermore, in a future episode, which we're Gonna record also today for the people watching live uh we're gonna talk about the players that we were uh, too high on and that totally let us all down and so yeah we've got all this data i've got a beautiful spreadsheet you can check it out by the way keepingcarlson.com slash ppp for all the patron projection project results and how they compared to last season so yeah it's gonna be fun to kind of go through all these players and like see what we can learn both in terms of like why we were wrong like why did we have this terrible projection that turned out to be you know nothing like reality and then also of course talk about the players themselves and discuss what we think they're going to do next year they're going to be closer to their projection or their output from 2020-21 i just want to get this plug out of the way early on elon we've also opened cuckupful registration and so a lot of what we're talking about has probably direct implications for everyone's cuckupful drafts it's the mock draft format we're using too if you don't know what the cuckupful is it is the biggest and best fantasy hockey league in the world, over 300 managers last year across four continents and 14 countries, all levels of competition. Everyone is welcome, uh, including you. If you're not yet a Kukupful manager, you should join us. And to do that, just head to kukupful.com, K-K-U-P-F-L.com. Registration's open now until September 13th. And that's all I'm going to, I'm going to do my best to leave the plugs at that. But we've been in heavy cuckupful opening mode. So I just, I just want to make sure it's out there. Oh yeah, for sure. We'd love to have you. If you're listening to this podcast, you're into fantasy hockey, join our league, man. We're going to have a good time. Trust me. Uh, okay. I guess let's also mention quickly, since you're speaking about plugs, we have to mention that we're proudly presented by DauberHockey.com, the number one fantasy hockey website in the world. They've got their guide out. If you're playing in the cuckupful or any league, you're obviously going to want to buy the world famous Dauber Hockey Guide, uh, which gets updated all throughout the preseason. So check it out, Dauber hockey.com but okay with that brian 
I do have one uh, gripe with you before we get into our uh, you know planned content here. Uh, you uh, talked you talked about this slow draft that we were doing, and I feel like you've been throwing out a lot of compliments to other people's draft picks. You're never complimenting my draft picks. Just recently, in round 15, I had two goalies. Then I saw John Gibson get picked by Jeremy, and then I picked Ilya Samsonov at 206, and you're like gushing over the John Gibson pick, saying, wow, what a great third goalie to have. Meanwhile, I'm sitting here like an idiot. Like, I thought I had a really good pick here getting Ilya Samsonov so late as my third goalie. I did mention Ilya Samsonov on the patron cast. We just mentioned we had one patron ask us who are going to be the draft day steals. And Samsonov was one of mine because if we remember looking into... So here, Elon, I'm complimenting your pick officially now. Thank you. I I hope this counts. Uh, Coming into last season, remember the hype around specifically Samsonov and Sorokin had like equal hype as Russian goalies coming to make their North American NHL debuts after what we'd just seen from Igor Shostyorkin. Of course, Samsonov with COVID uh, did not get in any kind of rhythm or play that we would have hoped for and expected from him and said Vitek Vanacek was the guy net. But I don't think he established himself, Vanacek, as a number one goalie or perhaps even a 1B goalie in the NHL with his play last year. So the door, I think, is as open this year for Samsonov to make an impact as it was last year when we were thinking that he had a chance to come in and be the runaway, high-volume, number one guy on a cup-contending team. So Elon Samsonov, after John Gibson, as late as you got him in our mock draft, brilliant pick. I love it. And I think he's going to be, he's a great, if you can get him as your third goalie, that's amazing value. That's just a flyer. You'll see how the first couple weeks go. If Vanacek stays competitive with Samsonov or Samsonov doesn't run away with it, and you see it's going to be a tandem situation for a while, you cut bait. But Samsonov could just take this job right out of the gate. If pedigree and background and buzz and hype and, and career like track record from what we know about these guys is anything to go by, I, I wouldn't rule out at all the possibility that you've got Samsonov, your straight up number one, and Vanacek, your straight up number two. Yeah, that was actually a really fun discussion we had on that patron cast last Wednesday. Just in general, people, you know, are asking about different sleepers. And Brian and I gave like a huge list of, you know, who we think will be draft steals and sleepers and all of that fun stuff. And I think the big takeaway that I have is that last year was weird. And obviously, we have to pay some attention. This whole episode, we'll be talking about what happened last season. But at the same time, just remember, it was a weird season. Some players maybe overperformed or underperformed small sample sizes, like COVID, like games being postponed. Like it was weird. So like, it might be useful to find those players that were drafted really high going into last season that have like their stock has fallen and those may be your draft steals this year some may not be but the nice thing like you said brian is if they're not then whatever it's a late pick no big deal you drop and pick up a free agent but like these are the guys like your samsonov like you're the person i picked in the round 16 was alexis lafreniere who is someone who was being drafted in the top 10 rounds in most leagues last year people were expecting him to have this like huge breakout rookie season it didn't happen he had a strong end to the season though and going into next year i wouldn't be surprised if he you know as a year older I think he's going to be locked in now, or at least from the projections I've seen, he's going to be playing with Zibanejad, especially with Buchnevich out of the picture. So yeah, he's another guy that if you could get super late, super high upside, that's what you want, right? With the late pick, who who wants to be boring and take like a Alex Tuck or a Sharangovich, as I'm seeing getting picked lately? Like, yeah, those guys might do something for you. But with my late picks, I'd rather have them have the chance to be stars or because like worst case, if they're not, I could drop them. There's probably gonna be a ton of free agents that we're going to be talking about in the first few weeks of the podcast that you're going to be wanting to make room for anyways. Yeah, once you've filled out all your positional spots in your draft, 
That's when when it's a good time to take those swings. Like in my in my mind, if I'm filling a bench spot, I'm filling a streaming spot, and that's where I'm not looking. I mean, some it's good to have one or two steady guys in case you have injuries that are unexpected, and then you can just plug them in. But like you said, Elon, you might be able to just find those guys on the wire, and your bench spots are your chance to take that one big swing or two or three or four, depending on your format setup, and say, okay, I'm putting my money down. Uh, so to speak, on this player having a breakout. I, I've gotten Jonathan Taves really late in these mock drafts, or relatively late. So he's like, that seems like a pretty easy swing to take. I'm going to spoil one right now that I have lined up for my very last pick in one of our mocks. Elon, if if you weren't going to pick him and I say his name, can you please still leave him for me? Okay, deal. Marco Rossi is going to be my very last pick, assuming that uh, he gets to play with Kaprizov who is under contract assumptively with Minnesota and or Kevin Fiala. I think that could be really exciting because of how ready he seemed going into last year before long haul COVID, which I guess uh, he has in common with Jonathan Taves. And now I'm like second guessing these picks. I don't know what kind of shape these guys are in, but this is the upside that I'm looking for with my very last picks in a draft. Yeah, well, you're not going to get Rossi in the one we're in together because he was just taken by Matt G. So good pick, Matt, sniping Brian on the guy he wants. All right, Brian, so let's get into the plan for today, which is we're going to talk about all these players that the patrons and ourselves who participated uh, were too low on going into last year. So I just have this spreadsheet. I ranked all the players by like percent difference from their projection to what they actually did. And right at the top, the player who most outperformed the projection that we gave him is Alec Martinez. And I know we've already talked about him recently on the show because uh, we did that episode where we talked about all the movement of all the teams and all the offseason transactions and yeah, he signed this new contract with Vegas but yeah the patrons had him projected for 24.4 points on average he ended up with 32 points in 53 games for almost a 50 point pace uh, but yeah I got it again like we've talked about him I think we ended up agreeing that we don't think he's going to be on this like 50 point pace next year but still probably a really solid bet for around 45 uh, so I, I had to mention him since he wins the contest as the player we were most wrong about in a positive way yeah, and you you would have seen this coming. If only your vote held more weight in our patron projection project, uh, it, we wouldn't have been so wrong on Alec Martinez. We had that over-under side bet at 40 points. And we, like you said, we just recently had this conversation about Martinez. Uh, but really, what did tip him over the edge, if you don't remember, weren't listening, whatever. Actually, we did our whole series where we went through player movement in every division. If you haven't listened to it, go back. It's great. One episode per division. Anyway, uh, Martinez had nine power play points in 53 games uh, this past season, which paces for 14 power play points, which would have been the second highest total of his career, the highest in the last five years. Uh, you add that to him doubling uh, like his mid-20 season-long point paces from the few years prior to this one. Like he had no track record of being this big producer. Uh, I still think uh, he's going to be under 45 points. Ilana, I still think there's a pretty, there's not, there's not a small chance that he's under 40 points, but maybe that's just me being stubborn. I, I don't expect us to be so wrong about him again, even if we have him at 40 to 45 points. I mean, he's like clearly g- been given a different role in Vegas than he had on LA. Either that, or just the team scores more goals. Uh, so, I think like, it's I, do- the, I think it's the second one for sure. But also remember, like he's coming, he's older. He's going to be thirty-four years old. He just played on a broken foot through the playoffs. I can't imagine. I can't imagine him being able to be so effective. I mean, I assume his foot is fine. I, <laughs> I guess yeah, I hope so. I guess so. 
All right, let's go to Dallas now. We have like a whole bunch of guys <laughs> that we were wrong about because obviously Brian famously would said that no one on Dallas is going to get any points. So obviously they made it their mission to make him look as bad as possible. There's Radulov, who I'm not going to bring up just because he only played like 11 games. We had like 13 points in those 11 games. Uh, there's Jason Robertson, who we didn't even project. I didn't even think when we were trying to come up with the players that we should project next year. I didn't think Jason Robertson would be someone worthy. And of course, he ended up putting up 45 points in 51 games for a 72-point pace. If it wasn't for Kirill Kaprizov, he would have ran away with the call. Uh, and then the two guys that we did project and projected very, very badly are Joe Pavelski, who the patrons expected around 45 points from. Uh, Pavelski ended up with 51 points in 56 games. That's a 75-point pace. And then Rupe Hints, who the Patriots projected for around 50 points, he ended up with over a point-per-game pace, 43 points in 41 games. Of course, Hints was very frustrating if you had him in fantasy because a lot of games it wasn't announced if he was going to play or not until like a minute before puck drop. But for the games, he did play almost a point in every single game, so you can't do much better. So, Brian, we've been doing uh, mock draft, like you said. Uh, Hints went 62nd overall after like around Sagan, Besser, Reinhardt before March, so Perron Forrest. But we're trying to give you a sense of like where people are currently seeing Rupe Hints. And then Pavelski, though, like fell, even though they had similar point bases, Pavelski fell all the way down. I got him actually myself at 122 overall around like Atkinson for Hagee, Hyman, Suzuki, Shen, Reinstrom. That's where Pavelski went. So clearly the vibe of our mock draft anyways is that both will fall, but Pavelski will fall like a lot more so than Rupe Hints. So Brian, I know that uh, this was a common topic of our podcast last season what's going on with dallas can these dallas guys keep it up now you've had the off season to reflect like all throughout the season you said they're going to slow down any minute and they didn't but now you have had time to reflect think about whether you know there was something off about your analysis or whether you think you were spot on so i'm curious to get your take on like pavelski and rupe hints can they keep up the paces from last year so maybe this is just semantic, but they did slow down. At least Pavelski did. He went on a tear at the start, finished the season still uh, with a like a stretch where he was a 60 to 65 point player, not a 75 point player. So imagine how torrid his pace was at the start of the season. I'm going to get into that in a minute, but I- I'm surprised you didn't mention, Elon, that I, like when you picked Pavelski, I picked Alex Radulov like five picks before that. And you were surprised. Pavelski was just sitting at the top of the auto-ranked draft board for rounds. I think it was like three or four rounds. And I'm like, I I wasn't going to take him. But every time it was more and more tempting, I think you did well getting him amongst the Verhages and Hymans and Suzuki's and Shen's and Strom's. I I think he can hang with at least half those guys. And I just... Trying to project Joe Pavelski has been a fool's errand for the last few years. He's had three crazy seasons in a row. He had this 40-goal pace in San Jose in 2018-19, his last year as a Shark, that I thought, and I was pretty loud about, uh, it being totally unsustainable. And then the next season, his first in Dallas, he had a totally garbage year when he didn't produce, nobody produced. And then uh, Pavelski had this huge season, just last one, when two key top sixers on his team missed essentially the entire season. And another one, Rupe Hintz, was a game-time decision every night, like you mentioned. It's just so strange. The, the like, There's no way to really put a stake and find any solid ground in any of what's happened in the last three years for Pavelski. There's been so many up and downs and changes in context and jersey. Uh, and yet, 
as a 36-year-old, Joe Pavelski, like, one of the crazy things about it is that he put up the second best offensive season of his career this past year in Dallas. His only better point pace was back in 2013-14, but he was already 29 years old. That marked the beginning of a stretch where Pavelski put up a 70-77 to point pace five times over six seasons before that. Pavelski had been a solid 60-ish point guy, uh, but really exploded, uh, like I said, around 13, 2013, 14. So the thing with Pavelski, that was his age 29 season where he really broke out. So he's always been this kind of late bloomer. And that tracks with the micro sample of his career as a Dallas star. You look at his first season, brutal deployment, his lowest five-on-five ice time ever, and an inconsistent power play role. And then his second year in Dallas, his five-on-five time on ice goes right back up to what it was in his days in San Jose, clear-cut, top power play role. And of course, as I already hinted at, uh, Sagan's absence, his occasional absences, and Radulov's absence, and Robertson initially not having, you know, emerged right at the start of the season. All of that contributed to Pavelski getting all these minutes back in his second year that he'd lost in his first year. I guess this all begs the question, things are going back to, uh, like, Pavelski's playing once again in a new setting we've never really seen him in uh, because you've got Sagan back, although we look uh, to what happened when Sagan returned at the end of last season, and we saw that Joe Pavelski stuck with Rupe Hintz, and Tyler Sagan was paired with Jamie Benn, and then Robertson and Joel Kiviranta sort of swapped between those two lines as the third piece in, the, in, in either of those top six combos. So... Uh, I think Pavelski, even with all the this change in personnel around him, can still hold a spot where he's centered by either Tyler Sagan or Rupia Hintz, and both of those places seem good. So now let's look beyond deployment, where, like, now that we've established, I don't think deployment is going to be a problem. So let's look at where most of this crazy season came from for Joe Pavelski. Uh, he based for 44 points at 5-on-5, five five, which actually seemed perfectly reasonable. Uh, but as he enters age 37, you've just got to say, okay, once you get to a certain point, especially, you know, the aging curves get steeper as you get older and older. So 36 years old to 37 years old, you got to dock him at least a couple five on five points there. But where we really have to look for uh, the impact and the difference between last year and this year is going to be on the power play. That's where Pavelski really popped in 2021. He had the best power play reduction of his career with 13 goals and eight assists with the man advantage. He pays for 31 power play points over 82 games and uh, 13 goals. They came on 42 shots on the power play. So he converted at 31%, which is about double his career power play shooting rate. So if you regress that which isn't automatic, but I'm just going to do it for fun. Uh, that You're already back to 65 points for Pavelski, which I think we'll see again. Um, I would just be a little concerned that, again, he's another year older and he's seeing more competition for minutes. Uh, at five on five, I think he's going to be fine. But with Sagan, uh, Radulov, and now Hintz going, I assume Hintz is going to regularly be in the picture does Pavelski lose? I'm curious to hear what you think, whether he loses his top power play role. Like, don't get me wrong. I still think uh, Pavelski is still going to have a, a good season, but I think 60 points would be a safer expectation than anything above it. And I think that's a huge compliment for a 37-year-old guy who's never been given clear-cut elite billing. Uh, I, I don't think, like, I, I don't feel conservative projecting a 37-year-old Joe Pavelski for 60 points, and it, you might think so. 
No, I think 60 sounds good. I think if you can get him there, that seems like a, a solid pick. And yeah, the question with the power play is interesting, right? You've got hints. Uh, Pavelski, Sagan, Robertson, Radulov. I just named five forwards that kind of seem like guys that deserve to be on the top power play. Oh, Jamie Benn, I think, still sometimes gets top power play time. He plays a specific role. Uh, There's not room for all those forwards, so either Dallas goes with 50-50 or just one of these guys takes a hit. It's hard to imagine it being Pavelski, but to be honest, it's hard to imagine it being any of these guys I just listed. So we'll have to do... We haven't done one yet. A Dallas beat writer interview uh, where we can try to learn a little bit more. I guess we'll find out soon with training camp coming. But yeah, I guess that's a reason to maybe be a little bit concerned about any of these Dallas forwards just because someone and maybe you know at the start of the season they might try something but if the power play is not working like there's a lot of people that could potentially get dropped because they have a lot of options of players who you'd think should be capable of being a top power play guy but in general Brian if you're saying 60 point pays for Pavelski I'd imagine that's not going to be the highest on the team so I'm really excited to now hear what you think about Rupe Hints and I guess overall can we say now that Dallas is no longer this low scoring team if, if we've got Hints Pavelski Robertson say Hagen, Radula, how could, Klingberg, Haskinen, how can this be a low-scoring team, right? Well, it's funny because they also let go of Andrew Cogliano at the end of this season, and he was like a centerpiece of their checking line that they leaned so heavily on. And at the same time, you've got Jason Robertson now in the picture, help filling out that top six. So I, I kind of wonder if Dallas is ready to turn a corner and be like, yeah, we have enough offense. We don't just need to shut it down defensively. Also, they don't have Ben Bishop back there anymore who worked perfectly for that system. And I don't know if they feel like they can totally rely on their goalies, which wouldn't be a reason to let go of, you know, your third line center, who again, you rely on so hard in Andrew Cogliano. But it's nice to see that there is some offensive upside in Dallas. And like you said uh, about that power play thing, just keep in mind for all these stars, if they don't end up on the top power play or if they Split, there's considerable downside too. Like Joe Pavelski at 60 points, it's lovely. There's still a chance that he ends up at 45 points somehow because of just how up and down he's always been. But also, there just might not be room for him to produce more than that. I also, I even left out a name, by the way. Josh is reminding me, uh, Gurianov, another yeah. offensive stud that can end up producing big on this team. Yeah. So, but you asked about Rupe Hints, right? Yeah. And so I, looking at his numbers, I see Hints. Uh, was a, had a fantastic year that was obscured by the fact that he was never reliably healthy, the most frustrating guy to roster. In fact, I advocated trading him sometimes, uh, like when we were asked for advice, for a lesser player, just so you didn't run the risk of losing, you know, a game, like uh, of having him locked in a roster spot one night when he's not actually playing and just dealing with that frustration. Um, but when he was playing, Hintz had, uh, like, Hintz really benefited from Jason Robertson's huge shooting. His five-on-five on-ice shooting percentage was up. But to Hintz's credit, he was the primary assist on a lot of those goals. He did a lot of creating, and there's no obvious coattail riding or anything. He was helping. Jason Robertson gets the credit because he put the puck in the net, but a lot of the time, Rupert Hints was the guy behind the goal, um, but still maybe a few extra goals. Hints' lines on average of one extra goal per 60 minutes at five on five compared to their expected output, which is say a goal every four games, which is about 20 goals over 82 games more, uh, like 20 goals more than expected that Hints' line saw. And he was a, partic- a participant on about 70% of points while he's on the ice. That's 14 points. If we want to regress Hints for his, from his actual goals to expected goals and use the rest of his numbers to calculate, that's 14 points less for Rubik. 
Trey hints. He also saw some potentially unsustainable shooting success on the power play from himself and his line mates. He scored six times on 23 shots. That's 26%. His, his teammates shot 22%. Um, so, there's some reasons to think, yeah, Hintz, Hintz overperformed last year, but I'm not at all disregarding him because of all this. To me, it just means that his 86-point pace last year is probably the high end of what we can expect from him this year. Like Pavelski, uh, Hintz also has Radulov and Sagan in the picture to take some minutes away, I imagine. Uh, like, look, last year, Hintz went from 14 minutes a night all the way up to 18 minutes a night. I'm curious to see if he lands in the middle of that with the return of all these other guys, or maybe he does hold on to 18 minutes a night. We'll have to wait and see. But the one thing I really like about Hintz is that he's 24 years old. He seems like a really good player. And I see him as a legit threat for 70 points. We're just going to have to watch carefully to see how things play on the depth chart. Like if he's tied to Pavelski as he was last season and Pavelski slows down, then you just have to hope Hintz can create with Jason Robertson or Alex Radulov as the other guy on his line to help pick up the slack. Yeah, overall, I'm just getting excited about Dallas here. Josh is bringing up a good point in the chat room. Like, we have enough players here. We could have two even power plays. They might as well do that, right? They have Klingberg and Haskinen, who are both great power play quarterbacks. And we've named like nine forwards that might be good enough to get significant power play deployment. So it'll be really interesting to see what Rick Bonus does next year. He's going to have to maybe try doing something a little different. Brian, you bring up the goalies. It's wild, right? They've got Holtby that they signed. They've got Hudobin. Then they have Ettinger, who probably is going to start in the minors now because they signed Holtby. I don't know. Well, whatever. I guess they have their reasons. And then Bishop maybe comes back at some point next year. Obviously, they're not banking on that. So, yeah, it's an interesting team. Dallas Stars, I'm curious to see what they're going to do. And in general, Brian, we've named all these forwards. Who, who, who are we drafting first? If you're picking a Dallas forward to draft first in your draft, is it Hintz? Is it Pavelski? Is it Sagan? Is it Robertson? I, I, maybe for you, it's Ratchelov after the, our slow draft. Who, who's the Dallas Star that you think you would take first among the forwards? It's nuts. I, I think the only thing I know for sure, and I know I'm like like a, a classic Pavelski skeptic, Pavel skeptic, but uh, he's going to be last of the group. And to me, that's the actually only clear piece in this ranking. I think I'd go Sagan, then Hintz, then Robertson, then Radulov, and then Pavelski. Uh, it's really hard though. I like to me, Sagan is still the number one just because he has, he has the biggest upside. I think his upside is higher than Hintz and higher than Robertson. Um, but he's also like a question mark. He didn't play very much last year. It's been a while since he looked good. So there's a there's a lot to wonder about this Dallas team. And they're one of the teams I'm most excited to see how the first month shakes out because of all we've mentioned about their depth chart. And th- it's a close pack of players here. Uh, what do you think? Like, how would you rank them? Uh, yeah, it's hard not to just take Sagan first because he's been so great for so long, though. It's also hard not to take a Hintz or Robertson since they're on the upswing and had such great seasons. I don't know, Brian. I, I honestly don't know. I, I'll, I'll defer to your list for no, now. No, I, 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 I don't know either, but I made okay. a list. Yeah, I, I agree with your list. I'll just okay. say that. By the way, this team like looks good, right? I, I guess goaltending is a question. Like, just because I told you a bunch of quantity doesn't mean it's necessarily quality, especially after who Dobin's here last year. But, like, their defense also. Don't forget, they've got Haskin and Klingberg, Essel and Dell. They signed Ryan Suter, who's still really good, I think. Uh, Yanni Hapanka, uh, that guy that was on Anaheim last year and got I think all those it's hits. Hakanpa. 
Hakanpa. I apologize. Uh, I guess I also said Sharangovich at the start. I know it's Sharangovich. So if we want to start correcting all the pr- mispronunciations, this might be a long episode. But yeah, uh, I don't know. Here, Fantasy Tidbits is saying Robertson first. So maybe I'll, I'll agree. It's really hard. Uh, it's going to be a fun team to watch. But okay, let's move on from Dallas now. Let's go to our next mistake. Uh, and that is Justin Schultz, who the patrons projected for 28 points. It's almost like, why did I even put him there? I'm sure people were thinking, why are you asked me to project this nobody, Justin Schultz? He had like uh, a bad season with the Penguins in 2019-20, didn't get re-signed, so he left as a UFA. Washington signed him. And I don't know if people remember this. He had 27 points in 46 games. That's a 48-point pace for Justin Schultz, like j- making him like rocket up our list as the third most uh defeating his projection. So, Brian, is there any chance that this was sustainable and Schultz is worthy of being drafted? Like to me, he's not even on my radar. Like going into preparing this episode, I wasn't even thinking of him in our slow draft. But now I have to ask, like, should I be drafting him with my next pick if I want to get a depth D? So in the past, Justin Schultz has always been someone with upside and with like, oh, you know, he could be a power play one quarterback, but has never really uh, found himself permanently in that role aside from, I think he did it one year. It was his first full season in Pittsburgh. Uh, but since then, he's been this reliable, like, 40, 35, 40 point player. I, I say reliable, actually. He's a really spotty track record. And with Justin Schultz, it seems to be feast or famine. He goes on these streaks, and then he goes quiet. And I think he's someone to try and grab when he's hot and drop when he's cold, rather than someone to put up with all season long. But if we're looking for the outlier, you know, coming into this season, he probably had such a, a low projection by our patrons because he just had uh, 12 points in 46 games with Pittsburgh for that 21-point pace. And I think that was probably the biggest outlier in all of Schultz's uh, career numbers. So I think recency bias really hurt his projection coming into the season. Um, he really struggled in his last season with Pittsburgh. This season in Washington, Schultz saw some on-ice shooting luck that propelled him uh, to that 48-point pace. But it's not to say he's like without that shooting luck, he still can't be reasonably productive. I think he's probably... You know, a 35, 40 point guy with a second power play role, give or take a point or two. I guess my, yeah, I, I feel like, again, he's not someone that I would be very patient with if he's ever on my roster. I'd be happy to have him, but I'm also not expecting that he's going to go ahead and do another 45, 50 points. He's almost like, you know, he's kind of like these Alex Goligoski or Alec Martinez types who have value for their points, but uh, the difference between them and Al- and Justin Schultz is that Schultz offers so little in the way of peripherals that he's really, really boring to have, uh, whereas those other guys have a nice floor if they're not actually putting up the 35, 40 point pace for a while that you're hoping for. Yeah, I'm with you. It's really hard to hold a defenseman on your roster. If you're in a league like the Keeping Carlson Ultimate Patriot Fantasy League, where, you know, we give our 0.5 for blocks, 0.25 for hits, you know, 0.5 for shots. So it's just nice to have a defenseman in that spot where even if they don't get a point, they'll still give you one or two, hopefully maybe 2.5 couple points if you're lucky. And then if they give you an assist, it's like a really great night. And Schultz was, yeah, like maybe he'd give you an assist and a shot and give you like 3.5 points on a good night. But then there's other nights where he's giving you only like one point and it's not as exciting. So yeah, I think I'm with you there. 40 point guy. 
probably not someone I'm going to draft. Uh, okay, let's go to the opposite end of the spectrum. Two guys who you're definitely going to draft. Two guys who I both had on my couple team last year, and I'm so mad. Like thinking about it, it's bringing back all my memories of losing to Ben in the semifinals because his team just exploded. My, my team was great because I got with late picks because of their low projections. Both Jacob Chikrin and Alex Debrinkit. These are guys the patrons projected Chikrin for 38 points going into last season. He ended up putting up 41 points in 56 games, 60 point pace. So many of them goals like Chikrin. We all know the amazing year he had, but maybe even his year is eclipsed by Alex Debrinkit's breakout season. The patrons projected him for a paltry 58 points, and Debrinkit instead was above a point per game, 56 points in 52 games. Brian, if you had to pick one of these guys, Chikrin or Debrinkit, who's more likely to continue where they left off when the puck drops on October 13th? You know me. I'm not just going to give you my answer. I'm going to talk about each player, and as I talk about each player, you're going to find out which one. But you're right in that there is only one of these guys that I'm relying on to be able to repeat their past season. Do you, do you want to guess off the top who I think it is? Yeah, to bring it. You think, yeah, so you're right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> there goes all the suspense, but here's why. Oh, let me even guess. Let me guess everything. You're going to say Chikrin was great, but you have no faith in Arizona being a team that's going to score a lot of goals. Is that right? So that's definitely a big part of it. Uh, yeah, it's not a very complicated answer that way, but I still want to give Chikrin his due because he's uh, this rare type of defenseman who consistently shoots with a near 10% conversion rate. He's been up above 8% for three years now. And when he's taking three shots per game, that can be money from a defenseman. First to get three shots a game, and then to have an 8 to 10% conversion rate on those three shots, that's fantastic. That said, he shot 10% at 5-on-5 last season. That's that's still probably a little high. Like, for reference, the top defensive shooters for the three years combined – prior to last season, where, get this, Carl Gunnarsson shot 9.7% in St. Louis uh, over the three seasons before this one. Then you have Jared Spurgeon and Damon Severson shot just above 8%, then nine other guys above 7%. So it's pretty hard for a defenseman to shoot above 7% at 5-on-5. I think Schickman's one of those guys, but I still think he might have picked up an extra, I don't know, goal or three at 5-on-5 with his shooting percentage last season. He also saw a career-high point participation rate that's at least 10% above the mark that we'd expect to sustainably see from a defenseman and him himself based on his career track record and an on-ice shooting percentage uh, at five on five that was also very high for Shikrin. It's actually like we see uh, such a high on-ice shooting percentage, just like around 11%. We see that for defensemen who play with superstars uh, but we we know how many superstars we can find in the desert this year coming up. And so, Elon, that's where it sort of all ties in. So Shikrin had this really friendly variance that might make sense if he had a better supporting cast. It might make more sense if he had a better supporting cast, but he does not. At the same time, again, uh, Shikrin uh, still had, had a clear role upgrade last year that had him playing and shooting more than ever before at all strengths. But I'm just saying, like, 60 points, too high an expectation. Don't just count on him to to have this linear growth from here or even hold, uh, especially, you know, like, anyone thinking about Shikrin at 60 points, that's that's rich considering how many forwards in Arizona we think could even get that many points. But I still think that Shikrin could get uh, 50 
if things go well and if the team in front of him is reasonable, like isn't the bottom of the pack offensively, if they are, uh, then I think 50 points would be a real success for him. I guess, Elon, my like question back about Shikrin is what would you put his odds at for being the Coyotes leading scorer this year? Yeah, so it's interesting, right? Like, you're talking about how, like, uh, you know, they don't have a lot of players for him to produce with, so what can we really expect him to do? Like, I'm looking at their leading scores from last year. So Phil Kessel was their leading scorer, 43 points in 56 games. He's still there. Chikorin was next. Uh, Garland was next, so he's gone. That's obviously a big loss. Garland had 39 points last year in, in uh, his 49 games. Uh, then you got Keller, who's still there. Schmaltz is still there. Dvorak is still there. So, you know, a lot of the leading scorers on the team are still there. Plus, Dimitri Yaskin is in the picture. He's Obviously, a guy who brings that big goal-scoring pedigree from the KHL. Maybe he replaces Connor Garland somewhat. So I wonder if maybe we're, like, over... Like, I definitely agree with you. Like, don't get me wrong. I would be very nervous at projecting him as a 60-point guy. Like, I'd be much happier to, like, lock in, like, a 52 to 55 projection. But I think maybe we might be a little bit overrating, like how different the quality of his teammates will be. But of course, you also bring up all the like variants and stuff that maybe was a little friendly to him as well. Anyways, I'm not answering your question at all. Your question was, uh, is he going to lead the team in scoring? I'll say probably not. I don't know. What well, odds is, would you take? Okay, here's the tricky part about that question. Is Phil Kessel, I think if he gets a lot of points... I think he gets traded. And then does he no, no longer, does he like not count anymore because he was traded and the rest of his points came from another team? So if we're talking about like him being the leading scorer on the team of points scored as an Arizona Coyote, I think those are pretty good. I think I go like 50-50 on that. But I think that maybe like a Kessel or like a Dvorak, like one of these guys might be able to pace for a bit more, but then do so well that they become attractive trade pieces, which is what Arizona's <laughs> hoping for. Right, they're going to strip that team for parts, get prospects back, maybe save a bit of cash so they can move to Tempe and uh, and be happily on their way towards the number one pick next season. So we'll see what happens with uh, with Arizona this year. It, it's going to be t- it's going to be an uphill climb for Shikrin to get to fifty, and I think everyone just needs to be careful because in our mock draft he was at the top of the board right from the start. If I was looking at defensemen sorted by fantasy points per game uh, using our Kukupful scoring, which by the way Kukupful dot com slash rules if you're curious to see uh, our scoring setup which like values uh, most setups should value a goal scoring shot taking defenseman if yours doesn't uh, maybe tweak it a little anyway he's right at the top and it's someone you're tempted to take so yeah he just broke out last season good times are going to continue and i just uh i think the breakout was great but he's not he's not in a position to, s- to sustain it yet given the cast around him. I hope he's able to pick up where he left off at some point, but I'm not sure it's going to be next year or even the year after that, depending on where he is uh, moving forward. But Alex to bring it. Yes. Yes. Go, go get him wherever he is ranked based on last year's rankings. You can count on that happening again. Last season, Alex Debrinkit saw three more minutes a night on average. Uh, and unlike the year before to bring it, was never randomly demoted at five on five or on the power play. And I am so in it for to bring it to just do this all over again. If so, like there it is, that's a short answer, but here's the extra little bonus that you get from listening to our show. Uh, you as a fantasy hockey manager and drafter, you want to try and let your competitors know that, uh, yeah, to bring it. No, you're not going to fall for that. He was really lucky last season. So if you want to scare them off, I wonder if I could phrase this clip in a way that you could just send them, like clip it yourself and send them. Anyway, to bring it, 
shot, you could tell your competitors, Alex Dabrinkit shot 16% at five on five. That's high amongst forwards. 25% on the power play, which is crazy high for an all situation shooting percentage above 20%. That means more than one out of every five shots Dabrinkit took last season went in and that ranked him fourth amongst all forwards, all scorers, all skaters in the NHL. So that would normally be crazy. For me, that's a red flag. But what you don't want to tell your competition about Alex Dabrinkit is that that's basically all in line with his career numbers. This guy's a high-end converter. Uh, Dabrinkit had this, you know, giant hiccup in 2019-20 where he shot under 5% at 5-on-5. And I don't know if you remember, there was some guy on some podcast that told you all Dabrinkit's getting a raw deal, and he still looks every bit the 40-goal scorer he was the year prior. Um, and look, that that bared out to be the case. And just to also put Dabrinkit's shooting percentage and conversion rate in context, the only other guy in the NHL who shot last year with the same volume and converted as often as Dabrinkit last year was Brad Marchand. And we're not saying Brad Marchand fluked his way to it. I'm not seeing the same from Dabrinkit. Other guys who are high-volume, high-efficiency converters include guys like Leon Dreisaitl, Braden Point, Steven Stamkos, Kirill Kaprizov, Mikko Rantanen, Jake Gensel. This is the territory that Dabrinkit is rightfully in. So I'm all in on another huge season from Alex Dabrinkit. And his age, he's only 24. He's going to be his age 24 season. He already has two 40-goal seasons under his belt. And that other one in which I swear he still deserved it. Uh, if you want one other caveat to throw at your competition, be like, hey, he doesn't get Pew Suter as a center anymore. But I, I don't think that'll be a problem because uh, Dabrinkit's other huge season came with Dylan Strom. I'm curious to see actually how the Chicago Lions play out. Um, but yeah, uh, Alex Dabrinkit, between him and Schick, and between him and just about anyone who broke out last year, Dabrinkit is the one who I think is more most likely to meet or exceed his totals from last year. Yeah, I agree with everything you said, except for right at the end when you brought up as the example of the center he's going to play with as Dylan Strom. Like, I'm pretty sure we're looking at Kirby Doc and Jonathan Taves. Oh, yeah. No, I didn't say he's going to. I said he did. He did really well with Dylan Strom. He did really well with Pew Suter. I, I just don't think, you know, there's no need to think he can only do it with this one guy. Oh, I see. Yeah, if anything, you'd think he's getting an upgrade. Like, no disrespect to Pew Suter, Not but if sure. he's going to play with Taves next year, or hopefully Kirby Doc is better than Suter sometime soon based on his draft picks. So, yeah, uh, all good times coming for Alex Dabrinkit. I'm with you. And yeah, Mark Lazarus agreed when we had our beat writer interview. He was like, no, this is the real Dabrinkit. He's a superstar. Everyone should realize it. All right, Brian, we've still got five more guys I want to bring up to you that the patrons got totally wrong and projected them way too low. So we'll get to them in just a sec. You're listening to Keeping Carlson. And we're back, Brian. Let's continue our discussion of players who the patrons were too low on in our patron projection project last year. Next up, Vincent Trocek. That's an interesting, right? The patrons projected him for a very basic 51-point pace season, continuing exactly what he did in 2018-19, 2019-20. It's not a big mystery why we all expected Trocek to be, once again, a 50-point guy. But the dude exploded out of the gate. He had 34 points in his first 32 games. And then even with a bit of a slow finish, he still ended the season with 43 points in 47 games. That's a 75-point pace, so 25 higher than what people were expecting. Brian, this was just like what Trocek did three seasons ago when he had that huge breakout with Florida, and then everyone thought, oh man, look at this guy, time to draft him, like the top 10 of my drafts in my bangers leagues, and then he completely disappointed people for a couple years, so I'm kind of scared to now tell people again, no, this is the real Trocek, expect 75 points, so what do you think? Was what he did this past season for real, or do people need to be 
be very buyer beware because like you know the whole fool me once shame on me like you know what i'm talking about right we've seen this happen before with chochek very hard to project Vincent Churchak. He, he kind of lines up. He's from, he's from the Joe Pavelski school of just try and project me, right? Because the situation keeps changing. His favor with his own coaches seems to change. Uh, and yet we're coming off a season where after a, a bad, like we're coming off a pattern where he was amazing. Then he seemed like trash. And then he was amazing again. Okay, let's not say 50 point pace is trash, but comparatively. <laughs> like definitely not worth what you were spending to acquire him in a draft or trade. Uh, but one thing to like about Church, I can think that he's on the up and up. He was rewarded last year for his work with an extra 90 seconds a night over the season before that. And look at who he's playing with compared to his last season in Florida. He's playing with uh, Martin Nechas and Nino Niederreiter, which, okay, you might say, okay, they're good. Um, but like, compare, juxtapose that with his Florida line mates, Noah Lachari and Brett Connolly. It's like, yeah, I can see why Trocek had a better season in Carolina this year. He rediscovered his own shooting mojo, had power play production come back for him, which has always been a huge part of his best seasons. Like he's shown himself that he can be a good five on five producer. And that power play role is where he really puts his value over the top. His points participation was high for sure. Uh, I, and that's something to expect that maybe he won't quite reach the heights that Trocek was at last season. And another factor to consider is uh, Tevo Teravainen being back full time. But when Teravainen was back for about 10 games at the end of last season, Trocek's deployment was virtually unchanged. He held a spot with Natchez and Niederreiter. He held a spot on the top power play. But I, just just throwing it out there. It's like the Dallas situation, right? You've got someone who was not in the equation all season uh, who will be back in the equation this season. So uh, putting all that together, I think rather than 75 points for Trocek, 65 to 70 seems righter to me. But we get all kinds of surprises from Vincent Trocek. So, you know, it could be anywhere between 50 and 80 points. But if I'm drafting him, I think I'm looking at him in that 65, 70 point range. Yeah, okay. I think I see that. The risk with Trocek, I think, is him getting bumped from that power play. The same thing that happened in Florida, right? They got Dadanov or whoever it was that year when he lost the power play. And then all of a sudden, you know, his point production dipped, which of course makes sense because you can get a lot of points with that man advantage. Uh, so if you look at Carolina, I think, you know, you've got like, locked in your Aho, Sveshnikov, Teravainen, and then like it was Trocek last year for a lot of the year. And I guess Teravainen wasn't there. And so Martin Nachas got some time. So I think you kind of look at like, is Martin Nachas ready to kind of take that next step and bump Trocek from the top power play? And speaking of Nachas, he's another guy who the patrons were too low on, right? The patrons were expecting around a 49 point pace. And he responded by putting up 41 points in 53 games for a 63 point pace. So Nachas was another guy who had a huge breakout, probably because he was playing with Vincent Trocek for a lot of the year. And clearly they both had a lot of success together. So Brian, maybe I'll ask you two questions in one here uh, first of all that top power play like how confident are you that Trocek can hold that over Nechas and then part two Nechas 60 point guy now like he's only 22 years old and he's just had this breakout season should we just rely that now this is a 60 plus point guy moving forward maybe there's upside for more but we could at least set the floor at 60 where he was last year that all hinges on the power play situation that you asked about. And I think the important context here is that Trojic was playing net front in Carolina and doing a really great job of it. I, I don't see, it seems to me that net front guys on the power play hold their spots 
more consistently than guys on the flanks. Like think of Alex Chieson and Alex Kalorn. These are guys who are not high-end producers, but they know how to play that net front on a 1-3-1. And so they just keep racking up those points. And I don't see a Natchez for Trocek substitution making a ton of sense when Trocek is playing that role so well. Of course, they have a new power play quarterback coming in and Tony D'Angelo. And you wonder like what else that changes about the power play. But I would be pretty surprised if Natchez usurped Vincent Trocek if they do hold that 1-3-1, which more and more teams are playing. So I don't see why Carolina would back off from it when it was so successful for them last season. So that's why I'm still optimistic about Trocek staying on the top unit and why there is a ceiling on what I expect from Martin Natchez, who had a fantastic season. His five-on-five production looked good, and it looked like he was growing uh, as he enters his just his age 23 season. Uh, he did have on the power play from the second unit 94% p- points participation. I've said that a, a few times. I... I'm trying to use points participation as a word to describe what we usually say IPP for, just because points participation makes more sense. For anyone who's not familiar with it, it's of all the goals that were scored while the player was on the ice, how many did this player get a point on? And while Martin Natchez was on the ice on the power play, he got a point on 94% of the goals scored from the essentially the second unit. So he's on a 17 power play point pace from the second unit too high like that's that that's not gonna happen uh very often it's a fluky thing uh the best second unit producers the guys who stay there all season long 12 points maybe 14 17 is is a bit high but Natchez's role uh, is going to keep growing on the team, right? I just mentioned he's 23 years old. He's young. Uh, Carolina, especially with what their budget appears to be, are going to want to get the most out of him during their window to contend. I'm bought in on Natchez being a legit NHL player, a legit contributor, scorer in, in real life and in fantasy. But just that lack of a top power play role puts a pretty firm ceiling on Natchez's numbers. So I, I think 60 points is probably safe for Natchez, but unfortunately, it, to me, it's also more or less that ceiling unless his power play role changes. Yeah, and I don't know, Brian, I think I might just, it's so hard to predict, but I might disagree. Just like, I feel like I'm more 50-50 on who's getting that top power play spot. Like, we've been here. Like, Trocek was great on the power play in 2018-19 when he had that huge season with the Panthers. Next season, he was off the top power play. So it's not as if it's unknown for Trocek to lose that spot. And you're talking about, like, net front and all that. Like, Natchez is bigger, right? Trocek is only 5'10". Natchez is 6'2". You'd think, like, usually teams put the bigger guy. So, obviously, we can't predict what RBD is, or that's not RBD, Rod Brindamore. Rod R B D A. What's that acronym that people use for Rod Brindamore? I think it's R B A. R B A. Okay. Well, yeah. Well, I don't know what he's gonna do. I don't even know how to say his acronym. But I feel like Natchez is someone that, if I had to bet, maybe I wonder if you could get odds on this. I would take Natchez maybe above Trocheck next Can I, year. Where do you? Yeah, go for it. Do you care if like Natchez? I'll just say Natchez didn't play on in net front on the second unit. Do you think they'll just like say, hey, you're going to move oh, from, from the flanks to the net front position? I don't know. Are you saying this like you're saying it so quietly now? Like, I don't know if you're saying this meant to be on the oh, show or like, no, no, it's, it's, <laughs> no, it's, it's meant to be on air. I am not hiding from the fact that Natchez, <laughs> like, not only would be getting a promotion to another power play unit and taking away a guy who was really productive there, but changing his role on it. It just seems unlikely to me. We've seen, like, uh, Elon, to me, 
This is reminiscent of Timo Meyer in San Jose, who just could not get on that top unit, no matter how good a player, how well-rounded he seemed to be, and how much he could do at five-on-five. There just wasn't space for him. And I could, I think Nick Ehlers is another example. I see the same thing. It's not new. Like, we've seen this play out before. It happens. And I think Natchez is the next victim. I guess we'll see. I think it's too early in his career to just like say that's for sure happening to him. But I'm not it saying could forever. Be. I'm saying this next year. Yeah, so I can't okay. wait. Let's uh, put a All pin right. in this. Come back. I think Trocek and Natchez, we like them both. Yeah. They both, uh, it's going to be dependent on this power play. Like we right. said, because that's going to be an extra 20 to 25 points, potentially. I mean, they're not going to get nothing on PP2, but you know what I'm saying. All right, let's go next to a guy definitely on the other end of his career as Natchez and, I guess, Trocek. So we're going now back to players in their 30s, like your Pavelskis. I'm talking about Matt Zuccarello, who had that dull 47-point pace in his first season with Minnesota, and then going into his age 33 season, it made made sense for the patrons to peg him as like a 45 point guy not worth drafting in most leagues then he was like injured to start the year but we were all wrong right like Zuccarello missed the start of the year but came shooting out of the gate when he started mid-February he had 11 points in his first seven games got right on the top line playing with Kaprizov Zuc ended with 35 points in 42 games it's a 68 point pace uh, of course, like you said about Marco Rossi, like it's a little concerning that Kaprizov isn't signed yet and all these stories about like, is he potentially going to go back to the KHL? So whatever. But LeBron, let's just assume that Kaprizov is back. Uh, I would assume that Zook is going to at least start the season on his, the other wing on his top line again since they played so well last year. So do you think he can keep up that 68 point pace again? No, I don't. I, and I was a very, very... Very happy Matt Zuccarello manager last year. I was really happy to have him on my roster when he came back from injury and came on the scene and had that wild, no pun intended, he had a a 100% points participation rate through his like first 16 points of the season, which is crazy to think he was in either his goal scorer or assist on every single goal that happened while we was on the ice. And we talked about that on the show as being like, hey, this isn't sustainable. And I dangled him in a lot of trades. And sure enough, when that unsustainable points participation rate tapered off less than 20 games into his season, he gathered Zuccarello just 15 points in his final 25 games. That's a 50-point pace. And that's only thanks to a flurry of activity in like the last week or two of the season that we saw from Zuccarello, where he again just bumped up his game and produced unsustainably. I could see Zuccarello, I still like him as a player. I could see him landing between 50 and 60 points. I think a lot of it depends on if Minnesota has a decent center to put between him and uh, assuming Kaprizov again. Uh, I think anyone playing with Kaprizov could be eligible to get a boatload of points. And Zuccarello has proven himself to be more than competent. I just don't see a ton of upside here, though. And he doesn't do much else on the score sheet when the points aren't coming. So I don't plan to draft Zuccarello. I think I'd think of him as someone closer to 50 than 60. And uh, like he's almost like a, a forward version of Justin Schultz, although I think better producing in general. But he's someone who could be really streaky and could give you some some really great runs and win you a week or two or three, but he might also lose you some if you hold on to him during those cold days. 
Yeah, like he used to be so great when he was on the Rangers. Then he had that like quick run in Dallas where he like I think it was like two games. I don't know. I remember it was very short, but it looked really good. And now in Minnesota it was a slow start. Then he's like looking good again last year. So it makes me like interested in this guy, thinking he could get back to being this high offensive producer. Maybe it just took him some time to adjust. But of course you bring up a good point that he's been a little bit streaky and he doesn't have the greatest peripherals. He's actually sitting in free agency in my dynasty league. Anytime I click on the players button on fan tracks and I get, you know, the players ranked by their points from last year he's right at the top there but you know it's a cap league he's getting paid six million a year so for three more years it's really tough to like buy in on this guy at that cap hit but if he's going to be top line top power play with Kaprizov and you know power play with Fiala it's a good spot but obviously no guarantee that he holds it in a cap league definitely like you should probably leave him behind that makes sense I don't know who you would need to drop Elon to make both roster space and cap space for Zuccarello but I I don't imagine it would be worth and again he could be really valuable several times throughout the fantasy season he's just we were talking about it at the front of the episode about how you want to use your last picks on someone with upside when you're picking your bench spots i don't think zuccarello is going to fit in most people's like active spots on a busy night and he's not that exciting a player to have on your bench Oh, I thought you were going to go the opposite. I feel oh. like he's a high upside guy because of that run he went on at the start of last year. It was amazing. If he's on the top line and top power yeah, but play. It was totally unsustainable. Like, of course, it was a great run, but it was 15 games. And that, that like I said, you're like, you might get that again. But I don't think I, I'm looking for a guy not who's going to be hot for two or three weeks, two or three times during the season. I'm looking for a guy who's going to be a consistent producer, uh, surprisingly, all through the year. And I, I, Zuccarello could fit that bill, but I think he's one of the uh, less exciting options. Like, I'd rather take a flyer on, I, don't know, I think I'd rather Marco Rossi. Okay. As someone I plan to stream. I'll take Zucco for Rossi. What about Zuccarello over Lafreniere? Who would you take there? Uh... Last yeah. pick of the draft. I think I, I would I would take Lafreniere. I would take the bigger swing, especially if it's the last pick and everyone else has passed on Zuccarello and I can just grab him from free agency. That's what I assume. I just assume he's going to, even if he puts up points in his first three games, he could still sit in free agency because I think people have gotten used to not expecting a lot from him. Uh, I don't know, Brian. He wasn't in free agency okay. for most of last year in Kakupful. I don't see why all of a sudden he's going to start yeah. the year in free agency. Uh, so I think may- most- may- maybe I'm reading it wrong. <laughs> most leagues... I think people are going by last year's stats. I'll be very surprised if Zuccarello's going undrafted. I guess we'll have to get those Yahoo ADPs when they yeah. come out and we can find out how people are viewing this guy. Okay, so uh, just to get your like your overall take, because I think we're reading his availability more, but if we're looking at projecting him, are you taking the over or under on, say, 55 points? Hmm. Oh, right around there. That sounds about right. Give me 56. I'll take over, but okay. it's close. Yeah. I've got I've got the under, uh, but I guess that's the difference between us on him. That's the difference. It's a two-point difference, but it means everything. Okay. <laughs> Next up, let's go to Colorado, and we'll talk about Sam Girard, a player who we knew to be a valuable part of the Avs, but the patrons weren't expecting too much on the offensive side of things after he had never broken like 30 points in a season in the first three years of his career, and then... The patrons gave him, like, a healthy 38-point projection, which I think was, like, not disrespectful, but it's, like, you know, a non-top power play guy. What are you really going to expect from a Girard? But Girard spat on that, like, 40-ish point guy label and put up a breakout campaign, 27 points in 48 games. It's a 55-point pace. Those are Justin Schultz numbers, Brian. Interestingly, if you look at the season splits, the majority of those points came in the first half of the year. He was nearly a point-per-game guy halfway through. Then he ended the season on a massive cold streak, only two assists in his final 12 games, which was, by the way, broken up by a six-game absence with a lower body injury right at the end of the season. So who knows if maybe you could just blame that like cold stretch at the end on this injury. 
So, Brian, what are we going to do? Are we writing off the poor ending due to the injury and actually considering him around a 50-55 point guy next year? Or do you think the highs and lows wash out and he's, like, somewhat sustainable at around 45-50? Or are we going all the way back to, like, closer to 40 like we were projecting last year? I think this is a really hard guy to project for next year since it's pretty rare for a non-top power play defenseman to hit around 50 points or higher. And Gerard is one of these guys in the NHL who could be a power play quarterback on 30 other NHL teams, maybe like 25 if we're being realistic, but he's never going to be in Colorado because of Kel McCarr. And even Bowen Byram could have more upside uh, quarterbacking a power play, but that's okay for Gerard because his five on five play is solid. He's got a great exit from the zone, can make a great first pass. Uh, but the reason, Elon, that Gerard did so well last season, do you remember that there were uh, 11 games when Kel McCarr was out of the lineup? So what, did he get like a ton of power play points during that time? He got a, he got a few. They weren't all power play points, but Gerard had 10 points in 11 games while Kel McCarr was out of the lineup. And I honestly, I think that's about it. That's the difference between what we would have expected and what he actually delivered. Like we know Gerard is this legit talented player, but we also know he's going to rarely have a role that allows him to put up more than 45 points and 45 might even be generous. I think, I think I'm only at 45 because all of Colorado is so high octane so dangerous that you can collect points pretty well especially if you're great at getting that offense going and is great at doing that as Sam Girard is I think he may have taken a step forward at five on five last year and had his best season at five on five yet and uh, he enjoyed a better rate of scoring chances per 60 than he'd ever seen before cashed in with some of his highest secondary assist rates that helped him up there um, but he really I think he overperformed while Kale McCarr was out of the lineup, and uh, Girard also overperformed, period, on the power play. I mean, I was just talking about uh, Nechas's unsustainable power play production, but uh, I think Girard is in a similar camp. He paced for 15 power play points from the second unit uh, in Colorado, and that will be hard to repeat, especially as a defenseman. I'd expect maybe 10 or 11. So all those reasons to say... I would love to have another fancy relevant defenseman in Colorado, but my answer is the same as it was in season, which is that Gerard is probably more of a 40, 45 point guy, which is nothing to sneeze at, but you can't expect uh, the 55 point pace uh, to repeat that he put up this past year. Yeah, if you're saying he had 10 points in those 11 games, want to say put it down to like five points that you would have expected him to get in those 11 games if Makar was in the lineup, all of a sudden you're down to a 46-point pace. So maybe that makes sense. Definitely still better than the 38 patrons projected him for before, but maybe not worth drafting. Unless he falls too far. If people are just like, oh, whatever, no chance he could do it. He's clearly a guy who's going to be on the ice a lot, and Colorado's going to score a lot of goals. So obviously it depends how deep your league is. He's definitely not someone to ignore. But I think we're on the same page, Brian, around 45 points. I'm happy with that. Yeah, I think he's probably closer to the Patriots projection going into last year of 38 than of his actual output at 55 and i will also throw out there like another thing that makes him really difficult to draft even if he is around a 40 point guy he's super boring he doesn't do anything 79 shots in 48 games like you're lucky if he averages a shot and a half per night he doesn't hit he doesn't block shots he plays a ton of minutes that's it yeah, if your league counts TOI, maybe he's helping you there. <laughs> yeah. All right, so let's end, Brian, on a player that the patrons disrespected last year. And so far, they're disrespecting again this year. We've been 
every day doing a rankings with the patrons on our Discord server for the last 75 days, just picking players that were ranking one at a time. McDavid went first, then everyone votes, and then whoever had the most votes goes second, blah, 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 blah. We're on vote 75, and we keep track even of players who have votes but haven't gotten the majority yet, so that going into the next day we can see everyone who has votes from at least someone. David Perron, still no vote, and we're on vote 75. This is a guy who, last year, had 58 points in 56 games, over a point per game pace for David Perron. Clearly, the patrons don't believe that he's going to be able to do it again. I mean, I'm also to blame. You're also to blame. We haven't voted for this guy. Last year, we projected him for 61. He made us look dumb. And it seems like, according to this ranking, everyone would just probably do that again. Brian, what do you think is going on with Perron? Like, that season last year was a career high. Like I said, like we're talking like an 88-point pace. Do you think that something changed and we're just all being dumb for some reason? Like uh, Tom in our Discord server, Hopplenuts is his nickname. He he gave a fun rant saying how he knows what's going to happen. He's going to disrespect Perron. Someone else is going to take him. And then Perron is going to defeat him in fantasy to pay him back. Is that is that what we're all just destined to do? To just never give Perron the respect he deserves just for him to go and put up a point per game season? Ignore David Perron at your own risk. He He's for real. He's legitimate. And you asked if something changed last year yeah and it's changed uh, like slowly over the past two years david brown has this new role as a trigger man especially on the power play and he's crushing it and it actually reminds me of max pacioretty a little bit who we've mentioned over and over on the podcast since uh after his first year in vegas he's reinvented the hockey he plays and is seeing crazy good numbers because of it. And like, remember, like, like David Perron had a really strong period of his career where he's a super reliable goal scorer and sort of, you know, drifted downwards and got lost in the middle and is now back on the up and up now that he is playing a bit of a different role. And a lot of that revolves around taking shots. And this is a very similar trajectory to what we're seeing from David Perron. And I think his coaches agree that like this is working for David Perron. He's at a career high five on five time on ice last season. Continued to see that career high power play usage carrying over from the season prior. Uh, he's paced for 31 power play points over 82 games. And I think it's for real. Perron pays for 27 power play points the year before. And I don't see any reason to doubt that Perron uh, is going to just go ahead and do that again this season, even though he's another year older. He seems to have found this new element to his game that he can really work to his advantage, and his team knows it. Uh, this power play production for Perron is the difference, because he's had similar production at 5-on-5 five five for five years now. But uh, within that five-year span, he got this look on the power play in Vegas, and he hasn't turned back. That's turned him into these 45-point seasons that were the sort of down, mucky bit of his career into 65-plus point seasons. And now, of course, he's upped his game even further with that huge... Uh, what, would, what did he pace for in on last year? 58 points in 56 games, over a point per game. Uh, so, yeah, it's... Uh, it's really impressive. There are some high markers of variance. Like his points participation is very high, but it's also consistent. I really believe it's a function of the role that he's begun playing. He gets tons of shot attempts and from super dangerous areas where he's been successful at scoring from. And he's good at creating when he's not the one in on the goal. He's good at like, I think he might be 
I'm not going to say like Ovechkin, but he's drawing attention. And if everybody's like, oh, yeah, David Prawns is going to crush it from from the side there and beat us. Uh, well, that leaves someone else open when they go over and, and chase him. So he can shoot. He can create. I think David Prawn is the most underrated power play weapon in the league possibly the most underrated fantasy player in the league. And I don't see why he wouldn't be at least a 70-point guy next year. Okay, yeah. Well, I don't know if now you've messed with the fabric of the universe because now you're ex- saying you expect him to I do know. really well. So now, <laughs> now this will be the year when he finally falls off. I bit my tongue because like, it's so cliche at the end of that to say, and that's why he's going to only pace for 50 points this season <laughs> and struggle mightily. Uh, of course, right? We're getting used to it. We see the pattern and now it's time for the trend to break again. Except I really, I, yeah, I, I feel very confident about it. Like, I didn't add that little couch because I really feel confident. He knows what he's doing. His team knows what they're doing with him. Everybody's happy and they can just keep rolling. Yeah. Okay. So you've heard it here first. Maybe you should. I know Hopplenuts. Tom's not drafting uh, Perron, but it sounds like you should. So take that advice. As we end this really fun episode of Keeping Carlson, we've gone through a whole bunch of players that the patrons projected way too low. Next up, and Brian, you and I are going to record this right now, but the listeners uh, just wait a couple days. Uh, We're going to next talk about players who we were way too high on and they totally disappointed us. It's going to be a totally different vibe. We really hope you'll stay with us. Make sure you're subscribed to Keeping Carlson to get that and all the great preseason episodes that we're going to be throwing at you over the next month and a bit. So just subscribe at uh, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. I don't need to tell you. You know how to listen to a podcast. You listen to this somehow, right? So please subscribe. We'd appreciate it. And while you're at it, if you're liking our show and you want to maybe support us, help us to put out more great shows, we have a Patreon where we try to give as much as we can to our supporters including our monthly patron cast. You can get the one we just recorded last week, which was a ton of fun. We have our Discord server where, you know, it's really heating up and we've had a lot of great help from Jeremy and Kevin to really take this Discord server to the next level and make it a really fun place to be. And of course, like Brian said at the top of the show, the Keeping Carlson Ultimate Patron Fantasy League. That's a perk of being a patron is you get to play in our awesome league. And we really think it's going to be an awesome year. And again, check out kakupful.com, K-K-U-P-F-L.com to get all the information about our league. But with that, Brian, I think we're good to cue that outro music. Why don't you go ahead and read us the credits? All right. Actually, right at the top of the credits, I'm going to mention when I was talking about Natchez and Trocek and where they shot from on the power play. That's from HockeyViz.com. We subscribe, like we support uh, HockeyViz.com. But that's available for free uh, if you want to go check it out. And then you should support it if you love it, obviously, the way we hope you'll support us. But uh, there you go. That's one way I use HockeyViz, which I do cite in our credits Every episode that I will begin now, this episode of the Keeping Carlson Fantasy Hockey Podcast was presented by Dauber Hockey and powered by our patrons, including our newest super supporters. Thanks so much, Tom, Derek, Rob, and Patty. Patty's like the original super supporter. I think she was our very first patron. She was, yeah. Patty's been with us all along the way. Patty, you're the best. Patty's a rock but, for keeping. But Robin and Derek and Tom also so awesome. <laughs> They're also great. <laughs> By the way, uh, there are so this super supporter <laughs> thing. We just is a name we're giving to the people who are giving us like ten dollars a month, which we really appreciate. There actually are other people on our Patreon that are giving us ten dollars a month, but they're not marked as super supporters. Uh, so if you're one of these people. Uh, you have to go on Patreon and like change your role, I think it's called, or change your tier. If, you, if you're not sure what to do, just DM me. Uh, I'll tell you what to do. 
Okay, thanks also to, uh, like, some members of, like, we're, like, really getting ready for the new fantasy season, and there are some people in our community, like, we love our, like, Discord server and everyone we've met through the show who are part of our patron community, uh, and some have really been putting in some time uh, with us and for us and chatting about ideas and ways to make this the best year of Keeping Carlson and our Discord server and the couple ever. So a shout out again to Kevin Hebert, Jeremy Versillo, John Newhold, Julianne Paquette, John Reed. Uh, thank you all for uh, for your help. And uh, if you're listening to this in your Patreon, you want to like, yeah, we invite everybody's involvement, whatever you want to do. And we'll be happy. If you, and if we missed you, like I've been working so hard, let me know. We'll make up for it. Logo art by BrandonWeave.com, another patron. Outro music by Pat Roach. This episode was researched with help from Dauber Hockey, Frozen Pool, Dauber Prospects, Natural Statric, Evolving Hockey, Cap Friendly, HockeyGoalies.org, Hockey Reference, Hockey Viz, Hockey Database, Elite Prospects, and NBC Sports Edge. I wonder if people are really tired of our outro music because I'm probably looping this <laughs> oh, for like two minutes for this too long. long outro. But whatever. Hope you're like, nah, 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 nah. Now it's going to sound weird because I'm singing it while it's going. So let's just end the show. Great job, Brian. Looking forward to talking to you next about the players that the patrons were too high on. Until then, do all you can to make sure that fantasy hockey is for everyone.